Hello again, everyone. Welcome to the Red and White Authority. I'm Art Regner. This is episode 29, the Ken Dryden episode. And actually, Ken Dryden was my boyhood idol. I, uh, I love the Canadians back then, and uh, it gives me great pleasure. Our guest is, uh, I'm going to say, legendary broadcaster, because he is, at least in his own mind. No, I tease him. Uh, but uh, Ken Daniels joins us, uh, Red Wing broadcaster. And uh, Ken, thanks for doing this. I really, really appreciate it. Art, my pleasure. Yeah, and if your hero, you know, was Ken Dryden, uh, I love Kenny Dryden too. And you, you know, the way he looked like a janitor on a broom with the, on the end of the stick there. I, my hero was uh, was Bernie Perrant. Really? Yeah, love Bernie. I, 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 I don't know why. I was a Bobby Orr fan, so I would have been uh, well May tenth of nineteen seventy. So, I would have just turned uh, eleven when when Bobby got that goal. Uh, to win the cup for Boston, but for some reason, Bernie Bernie Perrant, the Flyers, just the way he played, I, I just loved watching that kick save and the the end of the stick into the goalie glove and tapping the the post oh, yeah. with the end of his stick. Something about Bernie, I just loved him. And then he got um, dealt to Toronto, and then the WHA came a calling, and uh, he decided to bolt and wanted out of Toronto. According to his wife Carol, as I remember the story, um, she had bad asthma. And oh, something wow. about the air in Toronto didn't like. I don't necessarily believe that. Sort of like the Mike Palmatier story when he got hurt playing for the Leafs and he apparently fell down while putting up drapes. So I, I, I don't know how much I, I, you know, put stock in those stories from back then. You know, fake news probably from, from the 70s. Well, you know, but it's funny. If a guy injures himself putting up drapes, it, it really proves that athletes are people too, right? They're not extreme. You know, sure. It can happen to anybody. It you know? could happen to anyone. We'll, you know, we'll go with it. I've always told you this, and you know, growing up here in Detroit, I was a big fan, and I still am, of CBC Channel 9 in Windsor. And I've known you longer than you've known me because I used to watch you, I think it was Sunday night at like 11.45 to midnight, you used to do a, a sports cast, which was great because it covered everything. How long did you do that? And was that your first break into TV? Well, yeah, 1985 was when I got my start at CBC Television and I auditioned with no experience whatsoever. Uh, and I had gone, I was working for the radio station CJCL in Toronto, which later became the fan, Canada's first all sports radio station and is still uh, number one. So when I was working at the fan, it was um, an evening during during the, the week, and I had no food at home. Right. I was a bachelor and didn't have anything except Twinkies and whatever the hell else you would have had, right? In your, in your fridge, your cupboard. I lived on those, and I figured I had my Blue Jay Media Pass from the radio station. I was covering mostly sports, but I was doing politics and City Hall as well. And I thought, well, I've got no food here. I can get into the Blue Jays game. At the time, it was at uh, Exhibition Stadium right. or, or Excruciation Stadium, as we called it, <laughs> the mistake by the lake. So I figured I'd go down there and I'd get some food for dinner. And I ran into Don Martin, who was at CBLT working with Brian Williams. CBLT was CBL local television, the local CBC station. And Don said, hey, Ken, I'm, I've met him a couple of times. Right. I'm going down to the Canada Summer Games. Uh, would you like to audition? They need a fill-in for CBC. And I said, for television? He said, yeah. I said, you're kidding, right? He said, no. He said, call Howard Bernstein on Monday. It was probably a Friday night. Right. He said, call Howard. I didn't have a date either, which makes it even sadder. So it's a Friday night. I'm going to eat dinner at the Blue Jay game. Anyway, it worked out well for my career. So he said, call Howard Bernstein on Monday. And I said, you know, I think I've called Howard Bernstein before, and he's never answered. He said, he'll answer now. He will. And I called Howard. I don't even think Don told him, but I called him on Monday. He said, sure, come on down for an audition. And I did. And I auditioned with another guy who I think his name was John from Montreal. And I was on late night uh, during the week after the news. And no, it was the following weekend. So I worked the following weekend, which is what you're talking about. Right, went right. into Windsor and everywhere else. And my first audition art went something like this. We had 15 or 20 minutes sports cast. And I'm reading off the teleprompter as nervous as I could be, as you can imagine. Right. Never had any TV ex experience. I'm trying to, to get the job for the summer games and maybe beyond. And we, it, it, the, 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 the game from out west, the Canadian football game, went really late. So it was like 1.30 or quarter two in the morning. Wow. Okay? This is how late it was. And I'm in a little studio with a camera and the teleprompter where, which means, you know, your words that you've written come up in the, in the camera. So there's a, you know, studios talking in my ear. Okay, the first 10 minutes or so went okay. And then I had to write some extra stuff out of a pre-taped item. 
and the item ended and because I figured if I needed more time I'd just talk about whatever I had right. written on the teleprompter ad lib and we came out of the, the, the tape piece and I looked up the teleprompter and all I saw was ad lib and I said ad libbing now <laughs> <laughs> I, I sort of froze at that time but I kept going and it was awful I mean you know when you think in this business it's like okay it's five seconds right. but it seems like a minute five oh, yeah, yeah. that it seemed like three hours and five at that time and it was awful and I get through it that first night and I thought oh god okay it wasn't too bad except for that idiotic mistake and the next morning a friend of mine's brother calls me and he says you were really good last night first time I caught you on TV because I told no one I was going right. on well it's gonna be 1 15 in the morning I didn't right. want anyone seeing me right. and he said you were really good and the ending was hilarious and I said thanks very much I appreciate that so and then a week later they hired me so it was me and I did one night this guy John from Montreal did the other night and I wound up getting the part-time sports position at CBLT mm -hmm. so I'd work there which came into Windsor I'd work there on weekends and I worked radio during the week so I was working seven days a week wow. it was crazy and then uh, I think maybe yeah later that summer I think I left they offered me a full-time job at CBC I remember when you were hired by the Red Wings. I had you on my radio show. You, I, you might have been the first radio interview you did. You in were, if not you or Mitch were the first right, guy right. I spoke Right, because to. I knew yes. you, and, I, and that's right. and like we started today. I told yeah. you. Yeah. I knew you because now the thing that, unfortunately, you were great. I mean, I thought that spot, uh, what I liked about it was it, it was a 15-minute right. solid sports, yeah. but it was everything. everything. You, you know, and, and you did, a, you know, and I've told you this before, you've done, you did a really great job. But the one thing that people are going to remember from that, as great as you were on the air and all the great content you provided, was the mustache. <laughs> but back then, I've tried to, everybody, if you couldn't grow a mustache, you were trying. I mean, I that was an essential part of every man's wardrobe back then. Do you remember Marty Adler? Oh, yes. Okay, Marty, oh, yes. Marty Adler. I loved him, too. Marty Adler did the Windsor Sports. Right. He was working for CBC, and he was at the Windsor Station, and he did a piece. He went to Tiger Stadium and got lookalikes. And he found somebody there who said, is this Tom Selleck or is this Ken Daniels? So he, he did the whole bit there. So, yeah, I was trying to look like Tom Selleck, but it came out much more pornographic looking, I think, than Tom Selleck. Well, it, was, it was just that time that you had the mustache, and I don't know what I was thinking, Art. Well, you know, you, you're, you're an author of a new book. It, uh, if These Walls Could Talk to Detroit Red Wings, uh, authored by you, essentially, and Bob Duff, and Bob Duff a yeah. longtime uh, a columnist for the Windsor Star, just recently retired, uh, and there's a picture of that book of you, I think it's at the Olympics or something, you standing next to John Oates from Hall and Oates, oh, yeah. and you kind of look alike in that. I mean, your mustaches oh. are very much similar. It's a funny story. John, John Oates, we, I, I had driven down to Lake Placid, so I was still in radio. It would have been maybe 1984, and I con convinced the radio station because I was Paul Crowley, who was a scout for the Red Wings for a little bit mm -hmm. of time, uh, Paul was having fantasy camps. That's when I first met Gordie Howe and Bill Gadsby mm -hmm. and Don Marcotte and Wayne Cashman and, and Eddie Shack and Frank Mahovlich and it was just fantastic and so I went down there convincing them hey the radio station I can do pieces with the guys and we'll use them on the intermission of Toronto Maple Leafs hockey right. so I thought great so I went down when I drove into Lake Placid Art I see at the uh, on the on the uh, billboard uh, Hall and Oates in concert. Now they were my favorite band. I went, this is awesome. I was staying at the Holiday Inn in Lake Placid, and this was before it was named the Herb Brooks Arena, just the Olympic Stadium right. or whatever it was. So four years after you know the United States wins the gold medal. Yeah, the Miracle on Ice. Yeah, Miracle on Ice. So I drive up, and there's Hall and Oates in concert. I said, well, hey, I got to get tickets for this, and isn't this cool? And the next day, I went outside, and I run into John Oates. I just happened to go around the corner, and he's waiting for one of his band members to come down and play tennis, and he wasn't there yet, and I introduced myself um, and he said you want to hit balls for a few minutes so I hit balls for maybe three or four minutes with John Oates and then somebody came out took a picture the kicker is as bad yeah the two mustaches on that one <laughs> the next night the concerts on and I wait by the bus because they've got their bus taking them over to the arena and I had one of those focus cameras that my my news director Scott Metcalf had given me from Toronto to take down I gave it to one of our hockey playing buddies who obviously he was blind or had no clue how to work one of those focus cameras right. oh yeah when I got it back, when you had to take it to Black's Photography, the days before kids, it was digital right. and you could actually look in the camera and see what picture you took. You can barely tell it's Daryl Hall, John Oates, and me. I don't know. It was so out of focus. Thank goodness the one with John Oates and I came out okay. And funnily enough, at the soundboard, 
here at Motor City Casino about three years ago, Hall and Oates were playing. My wife and I were there. I took the picture of John Oates and me and went up to the front of the stage while he was playing. I held it up because I wanted him to sign it. Right. I held it up and he's playing and he looks over, takes two steps toward me, looks again and sees the two of us. Now, I wouldn't know who I am, right, right. but sees him with that right. porno mustache right. and looks at him and goes, whoa. <laughs> like, he's, and I, I made that motion, will you sign it? He, and he gives me like a thumbs up yeah. while he's playing, no problem. Well, a half an hour later, the concert ended and he obviously forgot all about right, me and was right. gone. So I'd love to get that signed someday by him, but that, that was pretty cool. Well, for no, kid, that's, kid to well that sounds great. I think the one thing is that, you know, when you are, I, I've always said what we do for beats working for a living because it's not really like work. I mean, because right. you love it, you have a passion for it. Yeah. And, uh, and the thing that I do like about your book, it's just not Red Wing stories. I mean, it says Red Wings, but it's really about your life as yeah. a broadcaster. And, yeah. and, and what I really, really liked about it, and, you know, and, and I guess is, you know, as you get older, and, you know, we're getting a little bit older now. We are. Um, is that you really reflect and you think about your family and you think, you know, and, you, you know, I know that you've said that maybe the greatest television interview you ever did was with your father, Marvin. I yeah. mean, that, my dad, this coming October, will be gone for 17 years. Yeah. It doesn't, he died young, you know, it doesn't seem like that. But, I mean, expound on it because that... I mean, when I read that, I mean, that just really, I got emotional about it. And it's, it, it's really, you know, what your father meant to you is, is, is everything. It is. And he meant, and I, and I think some of it, Art, was guilt on my part because my dad was 45 when I was born. Now, today, that can maybe be the norm. Back right. then, so I'm 10 years old, he's 55. Right, right. And my mom was 50 when I was 10. Right. Okay, she had me at 40. I'm walking home with a friend one day and I said, uh, he said, how old's your, your mom and dad? So I tell him, I said, how old's your mom? He said, 29. <laughs> now think about that. Oh, no, right, right, okay. Right. So I go home and I said to my mom, why are you and dad so old? I mean, that was my first thought, right? So I think back then I was embarrassed of my dad when he dropped me off at school because, you know, he had that comb over, right. you know, when you just shave your head, right, like, what right, are you doing? Right. So when he had the mustache, which made him look older too. So I think back then I was probably embarrassed and ashamed of that knowing it all then. Right, but that's a kid's thing. It's reaction, a kid's right? thing and, it, and it's awful. And believe me, we were really tight after. And when I think I finally moved out of my house in my 20s, which couldn't have made him happier. And now <laughs> I understand why. But we got really tight back then. And so for me, he lived to 96. When he was 93, wow. as I talk about in the book, and I won't go into the whole thing, but the week before he passed, um, Ken Holland said, why don't I drive you in to go see your dad? Now, he was living alone. He right. was golfing. He was doing all that stuff. And had Kenny not driven me in the week before, I wouldn't have had those last moments with him. Right. And then he had a stroke a week later. But to the interview, when he was 93, it was Hockey Day in Canada, and my dad had never seen me do a game live. And I said, why don't you come down? My brother brought him down to the Air Canada Centre, because I lived in Toronto till I came to join the Red Wings right. in my late 30s. And uh, for him to be up there, and we interviewed him in the pregame, and he talked about using horse droppings for hockey pucks. And he said, can I say horse droppings on the air? I said, you just did. So it really doesn't matter. But he's talking about Teeter Kennedy, you know, oh, his yeah, favorite right. players. Oh, yeah. So uh, we did the pregame, and he met Chris Osgood on the bench, was there, and he loved it, and just the speed of the players, and how big they were to what he was used to. He came up, and we put him on air in the second intermission. I come back, and I said, this is my dad, Marvin Daniels, do the and I asked him that first question, and there's this long pause. He froze. And I thought, oh my God, in those seconds, again, what is, what is television time? It seemed like a minute. He began talking. We end the interview, things go great, and he says to me, uh, sorry about me pausing there. And I said, yeah, what happened? He said, well, there was a monitor, a TV right in front of us, and I looked at it, and I saw how old I was. And I said, you're 93, Dad. Well, yeah, that's exactly how old you are. He goes, yeah, but I didn't really notice. And I said, okay, well, good. God bless you. So we went on. But it was a day I will never forget. And being able to do that with him, and he wrote me, and I, and I put it in the book, the most beautiful letter thanking me and thanking Mickey for the hospitality after. And here's a man who's 93, and he's on his computer and sending emails. And, wow. you know, uh, again, he was driving until he was 96. And uh, it was a week after Ken Holland took me in. 
and uh, he was supposed to go for his driving test with his now girlfriend, because my mom had passed, mm -hmm. and uh, she called my brother and said, where's your dad? He's never late. And he'd had a stroke in bed that day. Oh, wow. And then wow. went a week later, so. Yeah. But he, he, had a, he had a great life. He had a right, great right. Life. well, he did. My, my father had a stroke as well, and, you know, took him out. I mean, he lived after it, but, you know, it yeah, was, once it's, they, it's, it's kind of rough, you know, yeah. to watch, because they want to communicate with you, and right. sometimes they, they really... They can't, and I don't think they understand why they can't, because it's kind of like the will's still there, but the body's just not functioning. It's interesting you say that, because I went back in after he had a stroke, and he passed a week later, but in that week, and my niece Marnie had had her baby, Dash, and brought the baby in the day my dad had a stroke, she had mm -hmm. the baby. And I was there in the hospital room, and we handed the baby to my father, and we put it in his arms. Now, he couldn't speak. He looked around. There was no awareness of anybody. But what he did do was with his right hand and the baby in his left arm, he started stroking the baby. So he just knew gentle with the baby and obviously knew what that was, but just that blank stare that you just don't know. So the mind is probably there, but what an awful feeling. Right, is. right. It, it really was. I mean, you know, you know, just, you know, thinking about it, like, it's, it's very similar circumstances. Because my dad, there were a few things, like the last thing he ever said to me was, because uh, I was up for the Red Wing job, the, go, going from DFN over to XYT when they got the rights. And okay. he said to me, he said, Arthur you're going to get that Red Wing job, and you deserve it. And that was it. He never said anything. He tried to speak after that, but that was that was like the oh. last thing he ever said, you know. And so, you know, so I think about that a lot, and, you know, and I did end up getting it and, you yeah. know, spending uh, Easter Sunday with Ken drinking mimosas at <laughs> a playoff game in L.A. Right. I, that, was a, that was a good time. Um, you know, there's so many things, and one of the things that I remember, because, as, you know, as I've told you, when you grow up in Detroit, and you watch a lot of Canadian television, you're kind of Canadian too, where you get an understanding for the culture. And I watched a lot of Leaf games, and the one thing I always remember was Harold Ballard and King Clancy sitting in their booth at Maple Leaf Garden or the Gondola or whatever, their little box. The little and, box, yeah. Right, right, overlooking the Leaf games, and they showed them all the time. And you have a Harold Ballard story, which oh. is pretty darn good. Harold Ballard, he was what a curmudgeon he was, and half the stuff that he said on camera, uh, you you couldn't even I couldn't even now, say he was to like you now. The, the, he was like Mr. Maple Leaf, really. I just knew oh, him as like he was just everything Leafs. Harold yeah. Ballard was the man, and he loved it as right. cheap as could be. Right, and, right. And, and that was that was Harold. But King Clancy, King was a King, King was a great guy, <laughs> and they were buddies and owned the Hamilton Tiger Cats and. There's also a story I didn't put in the book. One night late at Maple Leaf Gardens, Harold was walking through there and fell down a manhole cover, wow. which was open, didn't see it. And T.C. Puck, his dog, Tiger Cat Puck, T.C. Puck was his dog, started barking like crazy. And one of the security guards heard and found really? it. Really? Yeah, wow. lots of Harold Ballard stories. But we were, I, I started my career and uh, the Russians, the, uh, the Soviets, had shot down uh, KL-007, the Korean mm -hmm. airliner. Uh, and Harold was to have the Moscow Circus in town and then abruptly canceled it because he thought the Soviets were murderers and didn't want, you know, he wanted no part of, uh, barely wanted Boreas Solomon with the Toronto Maple Leafs, right, any right. as he called foreigners uh, on his yeah, hockey different, team. different time back he, then. He yeah. wound up loving Boria though. <laughs> yeah. Hang a hammerstrong, maybe not so much, but he wound, <laughs> he wound up loving Boria and who wouldn't and ended his career as a Detroit Red Wing. So uh, one night, I'm, I'm this reporter at CJCL, got hired there early 80s and, and trying to make my way in the business and he had canceled the Moscow Circus. I thought it was seven o'clock at night or so. I'll call down to Maple Leaf Gardens and see if I could get an interview set up with Harold Ballard. I called and he answered the phone. And I said, I'm looking for Mr. Ballard. This is Mr. Ballard, who's this? So I tell him who I am and he said, what do you want? So I tell him, he said, come on over. And I said, to where? He goes, my apartment. I said, where's that? Maple Leaf Gardens. I said, how do I get in there? It's right above the hot stove lounge. Someone will find you. So I went over to the hot stone lounge and went up this spiral staircase in the back and there is Harold Ballard in all his splendid glory, barely dressed but he was, and his big round circular tiger cat bed in his apartment and we sat down and did the interview. So here I was, you know, just breaking into the biz right, right. and I, I left a plethora of clips for the next morning for the radio show of Harold Ballard and at that time that's a coup to get oh, right. Harold Ballard. It was pretty cool. So that that helped me and that's a lesson all kids. Just make a phone call. You never know who's going to answer well, the you phone. Know, you know, that's really true. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, part of it is just having the... Uh, 
the gumption, yeah. I guess, to, to just pick up the phone and make a call. I mean, or you don't know any better and you just do well, it. Well, right? right, that's true too. That, that that that's definitely true. I can remember the first time I met Bo Schembechler. Yeah. Because I grew up as a kid, big Michigan fan, and all that. I was like, I was like shaking, and uh, it was like media day, and I'm a freshman at Michigan, and I go into the, I use the restroom. It was at the old Michigan press box. I mean, the really old one, and on the second floor, that was where media day is. And I walk out, and Bo's walking in, and he goes, "Well, how, how are you? How are you?" Because obviously, he knew I was a Michigan student. You know, my hair's down the middle of my back back then. You know, I was like kind of a freak. And he he looks, he goes, "Well, how'd you enjoy the meal?" And I'm like, well, you know, I, mean, I could barely. I seriously, Ken, I yeah. could barely speak. You know, because yeah. I just admired him so much, and I loved Michigan's football team. And he looked at me and said, well, yeah, I, that's good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> you know, and he walked away. I mean, it's odd how you deal with that because when you, when you get to do what we do and you then start to meet these people, whether it's a Scotty Bowman or Steve Eiserman, um, whomever, Harold Ballard, mm -hmm. you do start to realize, as I said earlier when you were talking about uh, uh, the Drape story, is that they're just, they're really just people. They right. might be extraordinary people, but they're still really human beings and that's the way they want to be treated. And you hope for the most part, although you've idolized them all your life, right. that they are as nice as you think they are rather than just being, you know, and everyone can have their bad day. Right, that's true. Like Bernie Perrant, who I grew up loving and when I was with Toronto, I used to wait outside the Wood Street door at Maple Leaf Gardens for right. Bernie Perrant to come out so I could get his autograph. So here I was, not even 14 years old, maybe 12 or whatever it was, 72 or so, so 13 years old. And I, for some reason, I talk about this in the book and I don't know why, I wanted Bernie Perrant's cigar. <laughs> He'd come out with a stogie in his mouth after the game, and I was begging him for a cigar walking up, up uh, Church Street, trying to get his cigar, and I'm going, like, I don't know why I was doing that, but uh, so that's where I talk about being close but no cigar. He wouldn't give it to me, and smart on Bernie not to give a, a teenager a cigar. I just wanted it for some keepsake, not to smoke it. I have no idea. I would, it made me sick. So. Yeah, I, I don't want the fans to think that this is Art and Ken just going down memory lane, but I, I've got a, I got a cigar story for you, too. Old Tiger Stadium, the Yankees were playing, and I liked Bobby Mercer a lot. So we were kind of waiting for their, you know, on Michigan Avenue for the for the Yankees to come out. And Ralph Houck, who was the Yankee manager at the time, who later became the Tigers manager, comes out. Bobby Mercer, we never saw, and he's just signing autographs away. And you know, you, you know, kid, you know, it's the manager. You know, you don't. This guy's like a hundred years old. I, well, why do I want his autograph? But anyway, so you know, but you're gonna be nice, and he's willing to sign. So he signs. He has a cigar. He has a stogie in his mouth, and he throws it on the ground. You know, which is very common back then. Yeah. Walks away. It's still smoldering. My buddy picks it up and goes, "This is Ralph House cigar. I want to keep it. I want to keep it." It's like, dude, man. That thing smells bad. I know it did. Yeah, but no, for some yeah. reason, it was a keepsake. I right, 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 right. I, I wonder know. if he still has it to this day, but he took it. He actually yeah. took the cigar. Put it, yeah. you know, he put it out, made sure, put it in his pocket. Well, I'm sure his parents loved it when they got home. Well, yeah, really. <laughs> I, I, don't, I didn't get Bernie's cigar, but I do have his game use stick, and years later really? got a picture with him because Mike Keenan was my high school coach, and when Mike was coaching Philadelphia, he got me down to meet Bernie. So very nice man. He's one of those guys you meet and is as nice to meet and still does a lot um, for Charity work today, great guy. I know we only have you for a limited time because you have the game tonight. We're doing this on a Friday. Yes. The, the the Red Wings and Leafs are playing back to back. Tonight's lineup is loaded. It, it, it's almost like a regular season game. I mean, the, Mike Babcock and Blash Jeff yep. Blashell talked, and they decided that they that this game was going to have. And you know, and they probably play. And I know why they do. They play many preseason games for obvious reasons right. in terms of you know gates and everything else, which you got to do. They're probably way too many for the players to play. But yes, you want to measure yourself against good talent. Right. So you're right. Between Mike and Jeff, you speak and you go, okay, what lineup you bring in? I wouldn't want to be at Rico Coliseum for the next one. Dude, yeah, see who's playing in the back to back. But at any rate, it, it will seriously look like the American Hockey League at Rico. But for tonight, yeah, you get a good judge. So right. that, that's good to see. I. Uh, I was always a fan of yours, as you know, because I watched you on television. As I said, I've, I've known you longer and you've known me. I always pegged you for Hockey Night Canada. I figured, you know, eventually this guy is going to be somebody I'm going to say, I remember when he was doing the 15-minute uh, sportscast Sunday night on CBC. How difficult was it for you to, to come to a different country? I mean, Detroit's not, you know, it's not, you, I mean, right across the river, you know, Canada's south of Detroit, the old yeah. joke, as we say, but... 
Was it difficult to come here? Did you want to, you know, because you were pretty established. You were doing a lot of stuff. Yeah, I was nervous, though, and I had been let go from CBC local television. They had mm -hmm. cutbacks there, so mm -hmm. I was let go there, but had worked the rest of that season still with Hockey Night, still with CBC National Sports, so I still could have done Olympics. So I was doing Sports Weekend, the national right. show, which is like the ABC Wild World of Sports, right. CBC Sports Weekend. But when the job came up, and it was Dave Strader, who uh, told me about the job during the playoffs of 97. I was working with Greg Millen and I had done Ottawa Buffalo. Buffalo won, went on to play Philadelphia. We're in the second round and uh, I ran into Strader during the mm -hmm. intermission because he was working the game with Mickey for ESPN International mm -hmm. in the second round. We're in, uh, we're in Buffalo. And uh, Dave said, Mickey wanted me to let you know they're letting the guy go in Detroit. Now, that would have been Mike Goldberg, who right, replaced right. Dave Strader, was here one year. And I said, right. wow, okay, that's interesting. So I called my agent and got a tape in. I only got an agent because I was let go by CBC Local Television. Mm -hmm. I was still doing morning sports at the fan. I was still doing hockey night. I was still doing CBC. Right. So I was still working some 20-hour days at the time. Right. But I thought, okay. And I sent my tape in. And then fast forward to September. I'd heard and I'd been interviewed by the Red Wings, but didn't hear anything. And then I didn't think I'd be getting the job, and I decided to stay with Hockey Night in Canada. So John Shannon and I went for dinner, right. and we had a handshake deal to stay. That next day, they sent out a press release that I was staying, even though nothing had been signed. And I got two newspapers, the Toronto Star and Toronto Sun, on hold when my agent called me and said, What's going on with Detroit? Do you want to go? They've made you another offer. So I thought, okay. Then I had to rethink it. I called back John Shannon, who was executive producer of Hockey Night in Canada, and just said, John, what do I do? And John said, as much as I love you. And he gave me my start doing TV play-by-play. -play. Right. And he said, you got to go, because the only way you're going to get better is to do more games. Right. So as nervous as I could be, moving the family and everything else, I thought, okay, he's right, because he could probably give me 18 games of 27 weeks on Hockey Night in Canada. I was still waking up early in the morning to do morning radio. The funny thing was, when I was negotiating with the Red Wings, yeah. Nelson Millman uh, was my <coughs> boss at the radio station. And I'm negotiating with Detroit, and I was sort of undecided, and I thought, okay, if I could get a little more money out of the radio station, we're driving down to the Blue Jays game, and I said, Nelson, here's the story, can I get a little bit more, maybe another $5,000 or something? And he said, okay, let me call Doug. Doug Ackhurst was mm -hmm. the general manager of the radio station. So he's on the phone with Doug, and I hear Nelson, I'm driving. Nelson's in the car with me, and I hear, okay, Okay. Okay. And he hangs up the phone. I said, well, what did Doug say? He said, enjoy Detroit. <laughs> so I knew right then. Okay, that was out. So as it turns out, it was uh, the best decision I could have made. John was right. And to work with Mickey, who's become my best friend, um, he'd give his shirt off his back to anybody. Uh, always there for me. Uh, when my son passed, he, my, my goodness, and when Mickey went through the cancer and together and, and our wives are good friends and it's, it's, it's worked out to be a great relationship. I love the city, love the people, uh, love talking hockey with everyone. So it worked out very well. It was scary at the time because you're moving, you know, kids are young and everything, but it worked out great. I think only a native Detroiter like myself would ever ask this question, but when you decide you're moving to Detroit, was the reaction what Ken? You need to get your head examined. I mean, because the reputation of the city and what it really is like are two are two drastically yeah. different things. But did you find yourself almost getting defensive while you were going? Although the team at that time yes. was actually a great team. Well, that was actually the easy part. When someone would make fun of me going to Detroit, I would say, on the one hand, Red Wings, Leafs. You tell me. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of winning going on there. Doug Gilmore had already departed. Those were the good years in 92, 93 or right. so. Those were good years when the Blue Jays were actually stealing the spotlight at the same time winning world championships. But yes, uh, people did criticize it. And as a matter of fact, when I got the job and it was on a, on a Thursday, night I agreed to come to Detroit and my superiors at the radio station knew but the morning guys John Derringer and Pat Marsden didn't and it was that morning that Friday morning I slept in and I'm usually at the radio station about a quarter to five because oh, yeah. it's on the air at six the phone call comes at about 5 30 hey hotshot because it was in the Toronto Sun now Daniels heads to Motown oh, yeah. hey hotshot you come and enter did you pack your gun heading to Detroit <laughs> <laughs> right, well. Right? That's okay. what I heard, and I went, I'm coming in, and I got there at about two minutes to six. I ripped the wire, as you could do, right. went on. I mean, I'd seen the Blue Jay game probably the night before and knew what the hell happened because it was early September. And yeah, so I did not miss a shift, but yeah, they were they were critical of it, but certainly, you know, understood. I mean, you come to a great hockey team. My goodness, they just won the cup. 
what did you, being in Toronto, and, and, and Toronto, you know, you know, I don't want to keep bringing this to sound redundant, but I, I love CFL football. I watch it my whole life because Channel 9. Yeah. I'm an Argonauts fan. and You're the one. Yes. I, 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 <laughs> now. <laughs> I bet one of the Toronto media guy was in there earlier today during the morning skate. He had an Argos hat on, and I said, hey, I love that hat. Right. And he looked at me like, you know, you got to explain, hey, look, you, you grew up, you know, in Detroit, and Canadian. They're not Honolulu blue, but they're blue. No, no, they, yeah, they have okay. like, it's like three yeah. different shades. That's of right. blue the That's Argos exactly. have, uh, yeah. but uh, but but my point being is is that you're leaving a mecca of hockey, yeah, and you're coming to Detroit, an American city, even though it's an original six. Did you find the hockey culture similar or different? And the reason I ask that, when people ask me who is the Red Wings' rival, without question, for me it's the Leafs. You know, I, yeah. people say, oh, Chicago, or, you know, no, you have the sure. Colorado kind of comes and goes, and, you know, maybe Tampa now because of the playoff history. But when I look at it, because the series between these two teams is almost 500. I mean, you know, I, right. I mean, it's, it's, and then with the border and all that, and I was always curious because when I go to Toronto, I feel almost right at home. It sounds crazy, yeah. you know? Sure. And, and, and I'm just wondering because we always hear, what, you know, what is it like? Because we hear the difference between Canadian hockey fans and American hockey fans. You've kind of experienced both, although in very hockey traditional markets. Well, I'll say this. Toronto, and we've got all sports radio station here. We used to have two for a short time. Right. And you'll get the... And because you've got two networks there, Sportsnet and TSN National Sports right. Networks. Although they'll call it Toronto Sports Network, TSN, even though it's across Canada, right. right? Your lead story, more often than not, well, certainly from September on, is hockey. Right. I mean, yeah, if the Blue Jays were in it, okay, you'll be leading with baseball. But it's hockey. If it's Calgary, it's Connor McDavid in Edmonton. doesn't matter. More often than not, it's Toronto. And the debate is, and on their talk show, you've got a show called Leafs Lunch on one station. There's <laughs> Hockey Central at noon on the other station. You don't have that here. It's religion there where they're arguing the fourth line. I mean, who cares? Right. They're arguing the fourth line center. Can you imagine someone debating here in Detroit whether Luke Glendening or you want Riley Shane on the fourth line? No, maybe for one minute in a conversation right, on right, talk right. radio. That'll be two hours. I kid you not, that'll be two hours in Toronto. Who's your fourth line center? Who's starting the American Hockey League? And nothing else matters. Now, take the Argos to the Lions. No comparison. Right. They don't have college football. Right. The Blue Jays are long out of it. That's it. The Raptors are becoming better now. Right. Okay, the Raptors in the last few years, I used to have Raptor season tickets when they first started. I was center court, loved it. Had a seat license even. So, you know, but uh, now, now the Raptors are becoming bigger, but there's just, there's no contest in, con, uh, contest in terms of um, the notoriety of hockey there compared to here. It's a great hockey audience here, right? but it's just overkill in right. Toronto and across Canada. Uh, is this a, a fair analogy to make? I think eventually within the next few years, because they got to, this team that they, they're, they're putting together right now that, that Babs and Brendan and Lou and, and everyone's putting together. If they win the Stanley Cup, would that be equal? Would Toronto go as crazy as if the Detroit Lions ever won a Super Bowl? I mean, is it kind equal. of comparable? Yeah, equal. That, so that's, that's, I think that that's the way to, to say it. The way we, the Detroiters feel about the Lions and if they win a Super Bowl is exactly how we right. fans will feel. Because, you know, when the Lions last success, what, 57? Right, right. 60 well, years, right. Okay, 67. Right. Toronto. Right. Last Stanley Cup, okay, and there were six teams. Right. So that was it. And yes, it's been that long, And but for a few years, really in that time, there really wasn't a lot. The Doug Gilmore years, and he played his first game as a Leaf, I was there at Joe Louis Arena, Dougie Gilmore. Those were some good years, and later with Neuendijk and Roberts and those guys, but other than that, there really hasn't been anything. So there's been some probably better years in Toronto since their last championship than the Lions have had, right. for sure. But yeah, it would be comparable. That that I mean, Mike Babcock going there really was a no-brainer. I'm amazed when you even had, okay, maybe his time was up in Detroit. Right, right. As great a coach as he is, it was time for everyone to move on. And believe it or not, that will happen to him in Toronto too, even with an eight-year deal. But to go Buffalo or Toronto for him, Toronto all day long. He became. Right. King, right. And, right, and many Leaf fans, well, you know, you can be hated in the West because they're so, think the East rules the West out there, so Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver, and yet right. you've got a lot of Leaf fans out there. But Babcock, oh my God, to rule that. And the best thing that Brendan Shanahan ever did was hiring Lou Lamorello 
because now there's a buffer between Babcock going to Brendan. He's got to deal with Lou. So, you know which what? Is, which Just, is really good. Hey, I sat on the bus. I watched <laughs> I watched Babs go after Kenny Holland right. all the time. I right, mean, right. I saw that firsthand. And believe me, the amusing arguments sometimes, the two of them, they just right. laugh and they're great friends. Right. But, yeah, you, if you're Brendan and you're president, you don't want to deal with that every day. And, and Lou sets the standard. I, I know they, you know, just, it, it's Lou Dini. He makes things disappear in Toronto, makes things happen. Uh, I, I want to get t- touch upon yeah. Sandy Bowman. Oh, okay. Just because, and the reason I do, I mean, we could go on about Shandy and, and Babs, I think, and, and, and Brendan. Well, you know, let me throw this out because when we look at those Red Wing teams, the, you know, from 97 on that won all the cups and stuff, are you surprised that so many of them have very important jobs in hockey, are doing things, whether, whether they're league-related or specifically for teams? Stevie's running a team. Brendan's pretty much running a team. Draper's assistant to the general manager. Luke Robitaille in Los Angeles. Yeah, Luke Robitaille. You know, you, you know, Brett Hall Brett seems Hall. to f- float in and out yeah. of stuff. Yes. <laughs> you know, Shelley's around. You know, I mean, yeah. but but they're all. Not only are they excellent, were excellent hockey players, but their passion. I mean, it's just carried over. I mean, I think I don't know if that's you know Maltz's. You know, a scout. I mean, we could actually go. And Pat Verbeek, who's Stevie's Pat Verbeek, assistant, right? You know, and, and, uh, yeah, I, heck, I saw Jamie Pusher yeah. at the summer showcase in Plymouth over the summer, and he's like the director of Eastern Scouting for Tampa Bay, mm-hmm. which isn't surprising if you knew his relationship with Eiserman when they were when, right. when they and were Jesse Wallen when it Jesse Wallen, right? Another one. You know, um, yeah, because they hire smart people. They right. do, and intelligent people, and that was all part of it too. And I think uh, Kenny always. I don't know. I can't remember the, what the theory was. That like, well, I, I don't want to even use the term. But you didn't want any people who couldn't fit in as a good within a good group and intelligence. And yes, you can look for skill, and the game changes. And when Anaheim wins the cup, everybody wants to get bigger. Now you know you want to get quicker, you want to get faster. It's a great copycat league as the National Hockey League. But one thing, if you have good people. Mm-hmm and surround yourself with good people and you're able to delegate, you know, and that's Mike Babcock did too. He hired, he was still the head coach, but he hired good people around him. And so, no, it's not surprising that they're all in positions and they learn from Kenny because Kenny's very open that way and wanted to teach along the way and include people along the way. You know, Mike, Mike Babcock, it's funny, he used to, we used to travel and, you know, were we going to leave after a game? Were we going to stay? And he'd say, let me go talk to Nick. Right. So he'd go back and talk to Lidstrom. He'd come up and he'd come back and say, well, Nick wants to do this. We'll do this. And our thought always used to be, no, Mike said to Nick, Nick, we're doing this. Is this okay? I don't know if Mike ever gave him the chance to say no. However, but anyway, but you did. You conferred with everybody. So, you yeah. uh, know, I, I know we're jumping around and, and but... Jump wherever you want, Art. Okay, thank you, Ken. Scotty Bowman, uh, you know, I admire him greatly. He helped me out a lot. I mean, let me travel with the team, you know, and I was always crazy and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, he came up to me one time and he said, I want to ask you a question, Art. And I said, yeah. He goes, on the radio, he goes, you got to be a little bit of an actor, right? And I said, oh, yeah, you got to act all the time. I mean, I said, you're honest, but you kind of carry it like if I were... You, you, you kind of amp it up a little bit, yeah. you know, and, and he goes, yeah, you're really, really good at that, you know, and it was like the greatest compliment I think I've ever got, you know, Scotty Bowman, and, and the reason is, is that as cool as he made me feel at that very particular moment, there were other times where he wouldn't want to talk to me right. or single me out and stuff, yeah. which is fine, you know, I mean, you know, I, I don't mind, but he is without question, I think the greatest, and I've said this on this podcast virtually every episode, I think he's the greatest coach in professional sports history, bar none. I really do, just the way he thinks. But you've had some, you know, rather, you didn't talk to him, what, you, you, you did you avoid him for like six weeks or six months, whatever well, it was? At least six weeks. Yeah, I mean, yeah. What, what was your relationship like with him? My, mine is great, and I can right. call Scotty now, and yeah, I can no too. problem. That's good, yeah. And you know, I watched a game when we weren't doing it, the network took over a couple of years ago in Tampa, because he was scouting, and you actually sat there and pick his brain because Scotty was watching for Chicago and just to listen and the things that he would pick up in a game it was amazing I mean I, I want to do that again when I'm not calling a game I just want to go sit with Bowman and listen to him through an entire game because it's truly amazing right. well the stories you hear from the players on the bench and yes he could 
he could be a little out there. And he, Scotty, I used to walk up to Scotty and he'd say to me, what do you think? What do you think? And he'd say, Scotty, you don't give a crap what I think. It didn't, he'd, but he'd ask you anyway to make you feel good. And then he'd take the, the, the conversation wherever he wanted to take it. The reason why I avoided Scotty for six weeks was he pissed me off because it was after the, um, our plane incident uh, and we had to land in Sacramento. We had some problems with the engines and the pilots were great and it was safe and everyone down there even though the engines were on the tarmac and we were all scared, everything was fine. So I was going on the radio with JJ and Lynn at the time at mm -hmm. 94.7, I'd right. be on two mornings a week and two afternoons a week and it would have been a Tuesday morning or whatever and I was going on with them, it was right. my scheduled hit. So when we landed at like 2.30 in Sacramento after the scary incident, we stayed over there before we made our way down, I think we're going to Arizona or somewhere after that so that morning we're coming coming down the elevator into the lobby uh we're getting ready to go we're taking the phoenix suns plane or some charter maybe dallas had we're getting on another plane at the time and i come down the elevator and barry smith had to go back up to his room and barry said look out and i said what he said scotty's on the warpath i said for what he goes something you said on the radio now we're in sacramento okay it's yeah. now 10 in the morning i was on the radio back in detroit what now five hours earlier with a right. time change whatever and scotty heard something from somebody that i said something now i said nothing wrong right. i said how great everyone was there's no problem i mean it was on the news at six o'clock in the morning they had cameras there fox 2 had it out there it was everywhere so i walked over to scotty and in front of some of the players uh he started bawling me out saying who do you work for you're working for the Red Wings, you're working for the media. You went on the radio, people heard it and they didn't like it. I go, yeah, who didn't like it? So basically I told them off in front of the players. Right. Now they were like, they're, the players are wide eye going, holy cow. It ticked me off because the incident we'd just been through, right. I didn't need that, but Scotty was looking to deflect. That's what Scotty does. Right. So he took it off the players and everything that happened, I was going to be his target that day. So for about, it had to be close to six weeks, I avoided him. And we're on the road one night after a game. I think we're in Boston. It's in the books. I'm trying to remember now. You, do, right. you know how I was writing books. You've right, right, yeah, right. And you go back and remember. And uh, Mickey walked over to me. And he said, uh, you finally got him. And I said, what was that? And he said, your partner isn't speaking to me. He's pissed. Six weeks later. So Scotty knew. And then after that, it was fine. It went up. I just wanted to know that Scotty knew. Like, don't be that way. And, you know, he, after that, he was fine. We'd go out, we'd watch games on the road. I loved going out with Bowman. It was a lot of fun. It really right, was. Well, I, I did, too. I mean, I went out on the road with, you know, we were, like, together a lot of the times. And yeah. to have dinner with him or oh. take a cab ride back with him, yeah. you, know, I, you know, I'm sitting there going, I'm in the freaking cab with Scotty yeah. Bowman. You oh, know yeah. what I mean? It was, it was oh, sure. really exhilarating. I mean, yeah, he's, a, he's, he's truly a, a, a very interesting man and a great coach and, uh, well, don't think Mike Babcock, you know, still to this day, I'm sure calls him lots and did when he was right. here and Scotty was consulted and talked to him all the time. Yeah, great you, mentor for many. You look at Scotty and, you know, he obviously hasn't been coaching in a while. Babs has kind of taken that mantelpiece as being perhaps maybe even hockey's greatest coach of his generation or really well thought of. You know, Babs would be the first to tell you, you know, those team candidates – they were loaded. I mean, if I sure. can't win a gold medal with them, I'm never going to win any kind of gold medal. But similarities between the two, because you worked with both of them, you know, I mean, Baz was here for 10 years. Do you see that, is there something that makes a coach great? Do they all have a quality that regardless if they're quiet or introverted, extroverted, whatever, that you can say, yeah, I can see why he's such a good coach. There's a presence Sometimes you just look at a coach right. and you see a presence. Right. And maybe it's Quenville. You know that you get that death stare from right. Joel? Oh, yeah. Sure, there's the mustache. Right. But you got that death and stare from Joel. And I know you admire the stash. Yes, of course. <laughs> you know, and I remember Joel when he was with St. John's Maple Leafs and he was with the Leafs organization. So I've known Joel for a really long time. I just think there's something about a presence. Bowman and Babcock, Mike Keenan, who I played high school hockey for, right. Scotty was his mentor. Right. Now, Mike was a little out there, and he could go over the top, believe me. And, and I talked to him sometimes about it because, you know, when I finally got to the NHL and he'd already been there and we talked, and he went a little bit overboard. Bowman would just avoid people. I remember Wendell Clark came here, and about two weeks after his stay in Detroit, I said, how's Bowman? He said, I don't know. He hasn't said a word to me. <laughs> so, you know, that would be Scotty. He would just totally freeze you out or ignore you, and maybe you didn't want to hear from him. You know, Mike Babcock may go at you a little bit more. 
But Scotty, I think when, you know, later years in the veteran group he had, he could back off a little right, bit, right. where the players actually found it amusing at times, right. but he still had garnered all that respect. I think Mike coming in the early 2000s probably had to earn that a little more. And then before there was a mutiny on his hands in Detroit, was told by some of the veteran guys after his first few years here, you better back off. Yeah, you got to calm down a Yes, bit. you better calm down. So he had to learn that. And to his credit, I think to some extent he did. Now with Toronto, he's learning with a younger group, and I'm sure it'll come where they may get tired of his voice. But it's a learning process. And I think Bowman over the years calmed down too. Mike Mike did. I know when Mike went to Calgary and finished up because there were there were Regeer and Aginla, there were some fractions in, right. in, in that in that factions in that Calgary room that did not see eye to eye with one another. And I remember sitting in Mike's office at the time, he said, Well, do you go in there? Do you do you do you settle what's going on? He goes, I'm so past that. They're old enough. They're veteran guys. Let them handle it on their own. Right. Now, years ago, may not have been the case. Would have tried playing one off against the other. Not anymore. Right. Well, you know, it, it's interesting you would say because people say, well, you like Scotty Bowman so much, but, you know, he's kind of a weirdo or, you know, whatever. And, and I said, you know, maybe we in Detroit got him at the right time where he yeah. was complete. You know, he, he, had, he was so decorated and accomplished by the time he got here and he knew he had a really good team. I mean, sure, he had his moments, but, you know, I oh, always... Oh, he had his moments. Right, right. <laughs> he like, had like, many moments. Yeah, you know, you know what I Believe me. Yeah. You know, Steve Courtney, who now works over at WJR, we we're very good friends. Whenever I would walk into Scotty's office and I could sense that he was, you know, a little off that day, I would always bring up hockey cards. And when I started yeah. talking hockey cards, it just changed his whole mood. Oh, yeah. I mean, he is an aficionado of hockey cards like I've never seen. And trains. Right. Oh, and yeah. if you want to talk about Slingbox, <laughs> Scotty and I back in the day before everything was streaming, we'd have Slingbox on right. the road hooked up to the dish. And Scotty go, you Slingbox, and how do you do this or that? Oh, there's, uh, I, there, are, there are many, many Bowman stories uh, in the book that, uh, that that we could go through, there there are quite a few of them. Yeah, right. There there really are. Now, uh, why write a book? You know, I mean, did, did, were you thinking about it, or had it been no. on your mind? I hadn't. I thought it one day maybe, yeah. and then and I thought, how many stories are there? And then, thank goodness, I had kept uh, some twenty scrapbooks through my career of stories that were good, bad about me, whatever. Just put them in the scrapbooks, figuring one day for my kids, and uh, I'm. Bob Duff approached me and said, would you like to do this? And I know that Mario had done one. Mario and Pemba did one for the Tigers. It's a series of books right. if these walls could talk. Okay, that might be cool. It would tell my story. I think a lot of it is, and the premise of the book in part, a lot of it is Red Wings, obviously. Right. But is there... People say how lucky I am, and I am. I'm mm -hmm. fortunate to what I do. Right, and, right. and believe me, and, and Ernie Harwell said, you know... God gives you a job you love, you never worked a day in your life. That's and that's very right. true. And people say how lucky you are. And I always say yes, but luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Right. And that's the theme of the book. You're lucky, sure. But you're lucky to meet somebody. But if you haven't prepared through your life, visualization and everything else you're doing to meet at that moment, that opportunity when it arises to seize it, that's when you're lucky. So that's also the premise of the book. And when Bob approached me, I had asked my, my son, God love him, Jamie, mm -hmm. and I said to him, so this would have been last a year ago now, and he said, well, why don't you wait until your career's over and you can really slam people? And I thought that really wasn't the <laughs> premise I, I was going book. for. Well, yeah, tell-all book. That's what he wanted. So he was working for a law firm in Florida, and he actually went over some of the language in there and, and percentages for me and, and looked that stuff over. And uh, then when, when he passed on December 7th, uh, I had stopped writing for about six weeks or so. Mm -hmm. But then when I got back into it, because I knew it had to be done by April, so now you're into you know mid-January. My wife and I went to Florida, and I wrote like crazy and with Bob's help, and uh, it was really cathartic. And yeah. you know, and the stories, and just thinking of Jamie, and if Jamie would like this, and it really helped me because you know it, when something happens in your life and someone passes. Um, it's really busy and people are with you all the time those first two months. Right, right. So, and I, and I start to speak more about it now and I'll tell people when anyone passes someone, you know, in a tragedy, if it haven't been too much cancer going on now, my God, right, everywhere. I know, I know. And when, when it happens and there's reach out to people, when you lose someone, don't be scared to reach out to anybody and keep reaching out because I know what I found come January, February, after that in March, and we missed the playoffs in April. Boy, it goes quiet. Well, and those are the toughest months. When we were up at training camp in Traverse City, I saw you. And, you know, when your son Jamie passed, I texted you yes, immediately. You and yep. I said, hey, Ken, 
you know, offered my condolences. Sure. I said, you need anything, please right. get hold of me. And, you know, we've been friends a long time. And, you know, you know what, what you usually do sure. when, when tragedy strikes a good friend of yours. Yeah. And, you know, you were gracious, said thanks, Art, I really appreciate it. But then, then up in Traverse City, you just reiterated it here. I think I should call it, but you know what? I don't want to bother Everyone him. does that. I don't want to bother him. I don't want to bother him. And then you're saying, look, bother me. Bother me. Bother me. Everyone does that. And I'll tell people, Cheryl Sandberg is the COO, Mark Zuckerberg's uh, right-hand woman mm -hmm. at Facebook. And her husband passed suddenly on his birthday while they were way on vacation in Mexico. Was working out of the treadmill, supposed to come to the beach, never showed up. There he is, dead, next wow. to the treadmill. So she wrote a book called Option B. Your option A is gone. That was him. What is your option B? Right. How do you go on? Right. And I read that in the summer, this past summer, and I sat there for a week. My wife had gone to Minnesota, and I cried for a week reading the book. But it was a wonderful cry because it made me realize, how do you go on? And we always talk in our business, analysts, how and why. Don't right. tell us what happened. Tell us how and why. Right. How and why do I go on? How you go on because of your why is your daughter and your wife and your friends around you, that's why right. you go on. That's your how and why, and right. why specifically for my daughter, who's 21 now and at Michigan State. And, um, you know, that's what you do. So when friends say there are no words and they say that, and there aren't, what do right. you say to someone who's lost, whether it be a mother, a father, a child? Right. You don't know what to say. But if you reach out to that person even a month later, there are no words, hope you're doing well, thinking of you. I'm just telling people out there, right. it matters. Right, right, it right. It matters. Yeah, yeah, no. It changed the, my perception Good. of it. It yeah. really did. We, we, it changed we, mine too. You know. Now when I hear of someone or someone going through something or battling cancer, I mean, how often I reach out to Dave Strader, you've right. got it. Oh, right. I mean, just to, you know, because you're in that, lots of people do, but you want them to know you're thinking of them, and they do. I think about them every day. Right. Now, you, well, you know, you dedicate the book to your son. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you, how are you doing? Um, okay, now that hockey's back. Mm -hmm. it, was a, it was an awful summer because of what I just stated, right. things go so quiet. Yeah, you can golf okay, but I used to hang out with him and, and do things with right. him that you're right. not doing now. And so that was different. My daughter was away at camp, so she wasn't around. So my wife and I tried not to get too bored of one another. Right. So it was, uh, it was okay, but it wasn't, it's just not the same and it never will be the same, but that's where reading a book like Option B helps because it just teaches you, you can laugh again, you can go to concerts again. You know, we love Earth, Wind and & Fire and went to that show. Right, um, right. You know, went with Harry Glanz and his wife. And it was, well, it was a, you know, Harry, yeah. So it was a wonderful night. But you know, those are the moments where you go, okay, you can still enjoy life, but it's not art. There isn't a half an hour or 20 minutes goes by in a day. And I was talking to Ted Lindsay about this. Right. He's who enjoying. lost his wife. Absolutely. Yes. And we talked about that and I said, Ted, half an hour, he goes 20 minutes. I mean, it's not, not a part of a day. It doesn't go by where something doesn't remind you, but it gets to where the permanence of it and that feeling of the god-awfulest feeling when you first hear, it wanes a little bit, so that eases off, that allows you to go on. Right, you know, it's, it's interesting you would say that because um, I grew up in a house of four people, mother, father, sister, and myself. And my sister, my father, and my mother have all passed. And my sister was younger than me and died very early. Um, she died at 43 years old and not a day goes by where I don't think of all three of them, you know, mm -hmm. and you're right. And it's, I don't get depressed. It's uplifting. You right. know, it really kind of lifts me up. And I, when I think about them and the memories and everything, so it's when I talk to you and what you have just recently gone through, as you said, December 7th of last year, it's, um, you know, I can I know what you're saying, you know, but yet even though I can identify with it and I have empathy for you, as I said, I think again, human nature is I don't want to bother Ken. Yeah. You know? Sure. But, yeah. but now but, I want to bother yeah. you constantly. Bother me, go ahead. It's great. I don't <laughs> mind. And you know, my daughter sent me a couple of weeks ago, my daughter Arlen sent me a few weeks ago a video she had of my son when he was probably three years old and I was on CBC television on TV doing the suppertime sports mm -hmm. and him running up to the TV jumping up and down daddy daddy and kissing the television right. I saw you showed that to me well I I did okay yes. all right I did in Traverse and City I, and I right and I see that and I started to cry but yet the feeling of warmth that came over me that my daughter with a smiley face sent it to me via text mm -hmm. could look at that and send it to me and she was happy just knowing 
he was yeah, in our I thoughts. Mean, it, yeah, that I'm, makes all the I'm kind of tearing up just thinking about it. It makes all the difference. It, it, it was beautiful when right. you showed it to me. Yeah. And, you know, and I could he see. He was a cute kid, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, oh, yeah, he the was. The dad had the bad mustache still right, going, though, right, buddy. Right. <laughs> no, I can remember when they were younger. You bringing yeah. your family down yeah. to the room on yeah. occasion, not all the time. Well, you know, and, and we did. And, and Jeff Blaschel was so wonderful when Jamie passed and Kenny Holland and Mike Babcock, who opened up his news conference in Toronto talking right, about it. Right, right. And I have to say, on December 15th, because I remember the day, and it was, uh, you know, just over a week after. Jamie had passed and the Leafs were in town and it was mental health day up in Canada and I see Mike Babcock and I lost it. Right. Oh yeah. And just we talked for about 25 minutes in the visiting hallway at the Joe and uh, that was the first time and I went on I was scheduled to do a, a Sportsnet show with Tim and Sid in Canada so I went up to her booth and I did it and I finished and my wife called me and she had watched it and uh, she said you saw Babcock didn't you? <laughs> and I said how'd you know? She said because your eyes looked all red. So she could tell. Yeah. And I said, because I'm on, driving down and a buddy of mine called me and said, you're going to go see Babcock? I said, I'm not so sure. Just because he had always seen Jamie, you know, and he brought him to the skate and he took him in and was always very nice. So well, you, you, those are just memories. Right. And, you know, to, to talk about what kind of person Mike Babcock really is, because he, you know, he yeah. has his moments too, much oh, like yeah. Scotty. Uh, yep. But when he was here and Ted Lindsay's wife had just passed and yes. the Leafs were here and he was talking basically to the Toronto media and uh, which is like the New York Yankees, like we've said, uh, how, how the media that covers the Maple Leafs is huge, you know, mm -hmm. it's a huge contingent. But he opened up and talked about Ted Lindsay. And he started, you could see it, you know, you could see it welling in his eyes about where Ted was at and how he was thinking of him. I mean, it was, yep. you know, it, it was. It's weird. It's, it's, it, it wasn't awkward. It was almost, it, the only word, it was kind of a beautiful moment, you mm -hmm. know, where you saw this empathy and compassion that Mike Babcock had for one of the great, I, I mean, Ted's yeah. one of the best, you Love, know. He loved Ted. And, and it's the same towards sure. you, I well, mean. Well, after that, he had done that, and I was down the hall, and I walked out, and Mike was going to his car, um, and I'm walking down the hall and that was the first morning that he'd seen me. Right. right. Uh, I was after that. So it was the next time and he's in town and he sees me and he puts his arm around me and he said, my God, I don't know whether to give you or Ted the bigger hug, <laughs> you know, and it that, was that same. That's day. all you so, need to know about Mike Babcock. That, that's really. right. Yeah. Yes. Listen, he could back off on some things that he does to the players. I think <laughs> they might appreciate a little more. Right. And I've had my run-ins with Mike too, as I talk about right. in the book, yeah. he could be crusty that way, but yes, there's a heart in there just like there is in all of them. The hockey people are the greatest people in the world, and Blash, and Kenny Holland, and Babs, and Scotty, all of them. Wonderful people. Mike disagreed with something I wrote when I was at Fox Sports Detroit, and he confronted me on it, and I told him we're going to agree to disagree. But he'll confront you on it. Right, That's right, okay. Right. And, and you're said, there to answer to him. Right. right. And he, yeah, right. And he knows that I, you right. know, he knows he could, and I wasn't going to, like, go off the handle. I said, Mike, my source is impeccable on this. <laughs> I know I'm right. And he goes, well, you know, and then he walks away. I go, hey, you know, I went to a pretty good school, too, because he's always at McGill University. Oh, yeah. You know, and I said, yeah, McGill's a good school, but the University of Michigan's pretty darn good, too. <laughs> he kind of he kind of laughed after that. Good you know what you. I mean? It's like, hey, you know, yeah. let's be honest here. We're, you know, we're educated men, and, you know, I, I'm telling you right now, I don't make stuff up, you know. Right. And so, it, but, but, you know, you, but that's part of, as you said, that's part of being doing what we're doing. You have to be able, you're not like confronting them and like, you know, oh, you're this so and so, but you have to stand up for yourself and they want right. you to stand up for yeah, yourself. Yeah, you've got to be accountable. If they see right. you there, you say something like I talk about in the book, Brendan Shanahan, I said something, he came up to me and he talked, we, we talk about that in the book. You've got to be there, at least, at least answer for it. And that's okay, that they'll respect you for that. I've said a few things about Shandy over the years. Never fails. About 11.30 every night, my phone rings and it's Brendan. <laughs> yeah. And he, he'll make like so-and-so told me. And I'm going, yeah. So, like, he'll tape the game. That's he'll the see biggest, it himself. That is the biggest hope. Of, you know, you know yes. what I mean. Because oh, they yeah. all listen. Sure. They all read. They're, they know. You know I don't know so much if the guys today do with the Twitter well, with world. with the social media. And, and right. those who aren't yeah. just Canadian-American and those from overseas. Right. I don't know if they, they are so much doing. But the old days, yes, the players, they would record it, they'd watch it, they'd hear from their wives after the game what was said about you. Well, now you can go on Twitter and see what's said about you. Facebook, okay. everything else. But Ken, we've almost gone an hour. Okay. And, and so, and Am I, I the longest yet? <laughs> Jimmy Howard, actually. Did he? The last one, uh, the episode 28, an hour and 13 minutes. Okay. That's only because Sheldon Newman cut us off because we were using the wrong room. And then uh, I said, okay, Jimmy, I'll keep you another 30 minutes. And I talked to him for 53. <laughs> uh, but... Yeah, I would be remorse. We've talked about so many great and fine subjects.
but I have to ask you, this upcoming season for the Red Wings, your initial thoughts were actually tonight, it's too bad we're doing it right now because we're going to see essentially what the Red Wings may look like this upcoming season, or at least in the beginning. Uh, so many guys underperformed last year. If half right. of them come through, Mrazek looks like a changed man. You know, and I'm not trying to drink the red and white Kool-Aid here, but they have a shot at at least making the playoffs, I guess. Is is that the best we can hope for? If what do you think? If you've got a shot, take the shots. Right, the right. shot you got. Right. So, exactly. you know, it's going to be competitive. And you look at teams that have improved. Right. You know, Philadelphia with Patrick and the second overall pick. You know, now you got Giroux playing wing. I don't know how the Flyers are going to be. Boston, their defense two or three years from now is going to be outstanding. I'm not convinced about the Bruins this year. Uh, Ottawa, how long's Carlson out? Is he going to miss the first month? They took out half his ankle. Yeah, he took out his bone. Right. And he's, he's, if not, you know, there's McDavid, Crosby, and Carlson for me as the best players in the league. So who's coming out? Montreal, I'm not convinced about them. So who's coming out that didn't make it? You know, Tampa's going to be good. I think Toronto's going to be good. Buffalo's going to be better. Uh, the Islanders, I think they're going to go through all that thing with Tavares this oh, year. Right, right. Yeah. I don't know how that's going to play out and the building. And so New Jersey. Uh, I like I like New Jersey. I think this Nico Heischer. Oh, oh he, yeah. Pavel Datsuk was his favorite player. I guess so. Watch some of his moves. <laughs> I mean, he's he's this kid rose to the top and the number one basically out of nowhere. He he's a player. So it's going to be tough because everybody got better. Right. So is Detroit going to be better than last year? I believe they will. But you can't be losing points. You know, you know, you're, it's the U.S. Thanksgiving is always the benchmark, right, roughly right, that, 20 games in. That's right. I looked last year, though. Toronto was 500. I think they were a point ahead of Detroit, or right there at Thanksgiving. And look where they wound up in right. the 90s with points. Where, what did Detroit finish with, 79 or something? 79 points, yeah. 79 yeah. points. So Toronto took off. So I can't say Thanksgiving is the be-all and end-all, but the power play's got to be better. If Marty Furk makes his team and you got a weapon like him, that's a good thing. I mean, Shvechnikov hurt, Bertuzzi hurt early, so if Witkowski plays, maybe Booth makes it. There's some question marks. Um, Trevor Daly's going to help move the puck. Bottom line is goaltending. Jimmy Howard has to stay healthy, and I'm... I'm not convinced about Mrazek. I want his actions to speak louder than any words. Well, certainly, and and I, and from a media perspective, talking to him, he does he does seem different. But as you just said, let's see when adversity starts. Where is his mind really at? Right. You know, and if Jimmy's, I mean, Jimmy's numbers were great, but he only played, what, 26 games. Right. His right. numbers were outstanding. He's got to stay healthy. So I think they'll be more competitive than they were last year. I mean, Nyquist couldn't possibly be as poor. Uh, who knows about Athens to see you? Uh, you know, and if he signs, who gets moved? You know, but to me, that's not the be-all and end-all. I right. mean, Athens to see you, if he wants to go over there, okay, then he's coming back in the same boat with no Arbrights. I, I, I don't get that whole thing. I don't understand his agent is, is the same one with uh, Josh Anderson in Columbus, and the two of them played together with the London Knights. So I, I don't get what's going on there. A kid like Athens to see you, you're, you're a year pro, Take your time, no matter what. You should you get more ice time? Maybe you should. Right. But right. bottom line is, if you don't, you won't be the first player in the thousands who played in the National Hockey League to buy their time, and you'll get it. And the history of this league is, is if you produce, you're going to get paid. That you will get, you paid, will get paid in the National Hockey League. In right. 1.9, which is the report, 3.8 million for two years, beginning Thursday. Well, against the Minnesota Wild, he is losing a significant amount sure of money. Is. Sure he is. Yeah. And you can listen, you can take a qualifying offer and come back right. and prove yourself if you right. want to do that. Connor Brown just signed a three-year deal with the Toronto, virtually the same numbers. He, he signed at 2.1 on a three-year deal. Right. Connor Brown lost his starting spot in the top nine to Patrick Marlowe. He's playing on a fourth line now. Right. Scored 20 goals. So, you know, he's at 2.1. The numbers are not far off. But to me, Athanasiu just played for fourth line. You know, listen, he may not be happy with Jeff Blaschel, maybe the ice time not getting. I, I can see where he's coming from, but still your time will come. Right. Just no, play. Yeah, I understand. Look, and I, I don't know if there's a, if, you know, years ago a professor asked me, never ask anyone if they're happy. Right. Because if they think about it, no one's totally happy. Right. So you could go in in the Red Wing room right now, and as much as they get along, all of them might have some sort of gripe. Sure. You know, because that's that's who human beings are. So right. it's like, yeah, after this year, we understand where you're coming from. We really do. Yet, at 23, you, you know, your butt's got to be on the ice. You know, it has somewhere. 
you got to be playing you gotta hockey. Be playing somewhere. Well, he'll he'll say, "I'd like it on the ice more. Give me more ice time." And the coach is saying, "Show me. It's a it's a two hundred right, right, right. game. Show me you deserve the right, ice." You got to play both ends. It, it's a, it's a tough call. Yeah, I, I, I can I can see both sides to some extent. I don't get him sitting out as doing him no good. Then take a qualifying offer and go prove everybody wrong. But he's going to say, "How can I prove you wrong if I'm not getting the ice time?" Well, I, I, I know tough, but you're a young player, right. so you got You got to bide your time, and it'll come. Right. I can remember when Keith Primo decided to sit out. It was like, which was almost unheard of back then with the Red Wings. And I can remember the Wings telling me they were just saying to him, "Look, if you if you want to be traded, they'll accommodate you. You know, because you're, you're a name, people will want you." Play hockey. Come in the room and just play, and right. it'll happen. You That's don't right. need to sit out. Right. You, know, you don't want to give any kind of, uh, like, you're a malcontent or you're, you're this or you're that. Just be your hockey player, play hockey. Well, Jacob Trouba, perfect example in Winnipeg. Right. He really doesn't want to be. I think Jacob Trouba would love to be playing with the Red Wings. He but you know what? Would. Sign the deal. He's playing there. His time will come. He's a good player. He's going to make lots of money through it. Right, his right. Yeah, eventually. But, you know, again, it's easier for it's a lot easier for yeah. you and me to talk about it than yeah. for, you know, for a 23 year old kid who, you know, is is got a lot on his mind right now. Uh, name of the book is If, if These Walls Could Talk. talk. Detroit Red Wings. Yeah, it's available at Amazon. I, I, I think people will enjoy it. There's lots of amusing stories in there. I think for kids who want to get into this business and determination, and uh, if you want to hear lots of stories about uh, Scotty and Babs, and there's a whole chapter on Mickey, because that, that right, could be right. oh, that was one great. of its own. You're in there too, Art, calling me out on the radio. Yeah, you're right, in yeah, there, right. so we well, won't go into that well, one. We'll, but, we'll, you know. <laughs> we'll save that for our next podcast. I, I read it today, and I was like, hey, wait a second. I, I'm, I remember a little differently, but... Uh, you know, no, but, Art, those facts are correct. Yeah, I know you... We are, <laughs> we're going to never agree on that, but, no. but, but, we'll, but we'll hammer it out the next time. Ken, okay. you, you're a buddy. You know I, that. I, and, uh, you know, certainly... From now on, I'm going to try to call you at least once a week. <laughs> once every two weeks. No, once a week. You can call me once a week, absolutely. If I don't right. see you, call me. No, no. I'd be more than Right, happy. right. Because, I you know, like I said, that conversation that we had in Traverse City up, yeah. you know, between the rinks, David's rink and whatever the other yeah. one's called, uh, uh, really had a profound effect on me because, you know, I figured, you know what, God. There was, and I'm not saying it just because no, there were no. so many times I wanted to say, God, I got to talk. Then do it. And you know what? If someone calls or texts somebody, there are no words thinking of you. That's all you need because there are no words. Right. No matter what right. it is. Yeah. No matter what it is. Right. There are no words. But right. you know the people are out there thinking of you. And I know you are. So that's, yeah, that's, so that's great. Appreciate Ken, it. thanks again. Thanks, thanks for doing this. We'll have you on very, very soon. And uh, best of luck with the book. And uh, thanks, buddy. hey, the season's starting. I'm looking Thank forward to it. Goodness. Yeah. Can't wait. Thank you, Ken. Mm-hmm.